You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. History isn't black and white, yet too often it's presented as such. Grey History, the French Revolution is a long-form history podcast dedicated to exploring the ambiguities and nuances of the past. From a revolution of hope and liberty to the infamous reign of terror, you can't understand the modern world without understanding the French Revolution. So search for the French Revolution today. You've worked hard for what you have. Your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply. Welcome to the Age of Napoleon. Special episode, The Soul of a Free Man. Thanks for joining me. We're doing something a bit different this month. This is a recording of a talk I gave a few days ago at an event called the History Symposium. The subject is Toussaint Louverture. I was just one of a whole series of speakers on different characters from the Napoleonic era. Those other talks are available now, and I would encourage you to go check them out. The website is historysymposium.com. Anyway, on with the show. You'll have to forgive me if this is a little rough. This is my first time doing something like this live with an audience. Uh, normally, I have as many takes as I need to get it right. Um, before we dive into the character of Toussaint Louverture, I'd like to give a very brief overview of what happened in Haiti during the era of the French Revolution. On the eve of the French and Haitian revolutions, Haiti was the richest colony in the world. It was also not technically called Haiti. Its official name was Saint-Domingue, but for a whole variety of reasons, I've always preferred calling it Haiti. It was a slave society. Over 90% of the population were enslaved black people. A slim majority were born in the New World and the rest born in Africa. In the late 1780s and early 1790s, Haiti saw a lot of the same political developments that were taking place in France. Royal authority faltered in the face of France's financial crisis and new political factions rose up to fill the void. In some ways, the scene in Haiti was not too different from what was going on back in France. There were Jacobin clubs, National Guard companies, and all the other trappings of revolutionary politics. But there were unique colonial elements as well, questions about autonomy from France and the rights of the free mixed-race community. Just like in France, the tension built over the course of years, and the various factions began arming themselves. By 1791, violence was beginning to erupt. Civil war looked inevitable. Then everything changed. Up until this moment, the contest over the future of Haiti had, had taken place among the free colonists. Everyone involved in these debates took it for granted that whatever happened in the ongoing political struggle, the slave economy would keep churning out money and misery, and the condition of the great enslaved majority of the population would not change. But the enslaved people of Haiti had their own ideas about their country's future. On August 21st, 1791, a hitherto secret Black rebel organization launched an uprising. With the colonists distracted by their internal squabbles, the rebels made incredible gains, freeing more and more of their countrymen to join the fight. Soon, this unfocused rebellion began to take on the character of a serious military and political movement although the various rebel leaders all had their own ideas about what its aims should be. The entire colony descended into bloody chaos. The situation got even worse in 1792 with the outbreak of the War of the First Coalition. Spain and Britain were now at war with France and both countries harbored ambitions of seizing Haiti for themselves. 
Britain and Spain invaded, and both attempted to use the ongoing civil war to their own advantage. The Spanish began cutting deals with the ex-slave rebels, while the British focused on winning over the various factions of free colonists. Our protagonist, Toussaint Louverture, was among those who joined the Spanish. Then in 1793, the weakest of the armed factions in Haiti, the French Republicans, surprised everyone by abolishing slavery and guaranteeing the rights of plantation workers. Soon, many of the rebel ex-slave commanders were abandoning Spain to join forces with their former enemies, probably most prominently General Toussaint Louverture, who by now was coming into his own as one of the most celebrated rebel commanders. This unlikely alliance turned the tide of the war. Soon, Spain was out of the fight. The British doubled down. Tens of thousands of redcoats, colonial militiamen, and Royal Navy sailors served in Haiti at the peak of British involvement. But the combination of rough terrain, tropical disease, and skilled, innovative resistance by their French and Haitian enemies frustrated their efforts. Working alongside the French, Louverture continued to build his reputation as a soldier and political leader. The French government named him commander-in-chief of all Republican forces on the island. No matter how many men the British poured into the colony, they were never able to push out of their coastal strongholds and take the fight to the enemy. Meanwhile, the rebel ex-slaves and the remains of the French forces in the colony built themselves into a truly formidable professional army and began to take ground from the British. Finally, in 1797, the Redcoats pulled out. The colony was at peace for the first time in seven years, but seven years of war and foreign invasion had left it practically destroyed. By now, Louverture was the paramount political figure in the colony, and he went to work trying to rebuild the country and solidify his own position against a seemingly endless succession of rivals. Finally, in 1802, Louverture was betrayed by his French allies. First Consul Napoleon Bonaparte sent a, sent a huge expedition to the colony, aimed at overthrowing Louverture and reestablishing white domination. The expedition failed to defeat Louverture on the battlefield, and eventually resorted to deception to get their hands on him. Louverture was arrested and brought to France. He died a year later due to mistreatment by his captors. However, the brutality of the French expedition and the martyrdom of Toussaint Louverture galvanized a new wave of resistance among the Haitian people. Before long, a combination of guerrilla tactics, tropical disease, and renewed hostilities between France and Britain gave the Haitians the advantage. The French were finally defeated in late 1803, and on New Year's Day, 1804, Haiti declared independence. So hopefully that brief sketch gives you some idea of the course of events. For the rest of my time with you, I'd like to depart from a traditional biographical narrative. Louverture led a varied and exceptional life. It would be impossible to do it justice in a short presentation. So instead of trying to cover everything, I would like to give you an impression of what kind of man he was, what he was up against and how he was able to secure his unique place in history. I've been doing this show for almost six years, and I think I can say that in all that time, Louverture is maybe the most fascinating character I've written about, with the possible exception of Napoleon himself. I hope by the end of this presentation, you'll understand why, and be eager to go out and read more about him and learn the whole story. If there's one thing people know about Louverture, it's probably that he was the leader of the world's only successful slave rebellion. So in the literal sense of the word, he is a singular figure in history. I think if we want to really understand Louverture, we have to start by elaborating on what it meant to rebel against the slave system in Haiti. For starters, I think it's important to understand just how lethal Haitian slavery was. Roughly 15% of those kidnapped by slavers in Africa died before reaching the New World. That's three out of every 20 people dead before setting foot on the colony. When the survivors landed in Haiti, the vast majority of enslaved Africans ended up on sugar plantations. Sugar was the lifeblood of the colonial economy. In this era, cultivating and harvesting sugar was incredibly labor-intensive and very dangerous, hence the demand for enslaved labor. In fact, the work was so dangerous and the conditions so bad that the average life expectancy of an enslaved worker in the Haitian cane fields was about four years. Those who survived were often maimed. The loss of an arm was the most common disability, but there were any number of ways the cane fields could destroy a person's body. Other types of agricultural labor were less dangerous, 
but overwork and poor nutrition made mortality rates high across the colony. And those were just the dangers from the conditions in the field. Enslaved Haitians also had to contend with the brutality of the slaveholders. This whole system was held together by violence and fear. Torture, sexual assault, and murder were not only legal, they were woven into the very fabric of colonial society. I'll spare you the details, but the kind of really grotesque theatrical violence that we today associate with marginal extremist groups like ISIS or the Taliban was a routine part of life in this part of the world, sanctioned by the government authorities and the economic elite. These mortality numbers are quite stark, but they still don't paint a complete picture of the misery of Haitian slavery. Among those who survived, the terrible conditions and dehumanizing treatment left deep hidden scars. Perhaps unsurprisingly, before the revolution, suicide was quite common among Black Haitians. It's hard to say exactly how this brutal slave system shaped Toussaint Louverture. He was born into slavery and remained enslaved throughout his youth and young adulthood. Louverture himself always denied that he ever accepted his condition, famously saying, I was born with the soul of a free man. He had a relatively privileged position on the plantation where he was born and raised. He didn't have to work in the cane fields, and as far as we know, he never fell victim to the spectacular violence that permeated the system. But spending his formative years as a captive, dehumanized and robbed of his free will, must have had an impact. Personally, I've always wondered if his guarded, secretive nature might have been partially shaped by the experience of slavery. Revolutionaries of this era were very fond of the slogan, liberty or death. You see it crop up in America during the War of Independence and in Europe during the French Revolution. But I don't think it was ever quite so literally true as when it was invoked by the Haitian revolutionaries. The Haitian rebels knew that if they were defeated, not only would they themselves likely die a horrible death, but once this system was restored, their families, friends, and everyone they knew would be used up and discarded along with countless hundreds of thousands of their countrymen. These facts are not pleasant to contemplate, but I think they are key to understanding the nature of this rebellion and to understanding the scale of Louverture's achievements. He promised the people of Haiti that if they followed him, he would put a stop to this barbaric system, and then he delivered. Whatever else you can say about the Haitian Revolution, hundreds of thousands of people and millions of their descendants were delivered from dehumanizing brutality and likely premature death. With that in mind, I think it becomes immediately obvious why Louverture was such an icon to so many, even beyond Haiti's borders and decades after his death. Some of his most fervent followers even believed he was capable of supernatural feats, which I suppose isn't surprising in light of what he achieved. When I first started seriously researching Louverture, I didn't expect to find very much about the man himself. People love to write about national icons and doomed heroes, but they tend to write the legends and leave the flawed, fallible human beings behind the legends in the dark. And not only that, Louverture lived in obscurity until he was 48 years old. His public career only lasted about 10 years. On top of that, for most of those 10 years, his country was in a state of social and economic collapse. This was not an environment conducive to the keeping of records and chronicles, to say the least. We don't even have a good idea of what Louverture looked like. All of these images purport to be portraits of Louverture, and as you can see, they don't really agree on much other than he was a middle-aged black man who wore a French general's uniform. As I started my research, I was pleasantly surprised to learn that Louverture is not as mysterious as I had imagined. There are still a lot of unanswered questions about his life, some of which are quite intriguing, but scholars have done an impressive job peeling away the layers of myth and giving us a surprisingly clear image of the man himself. The person who emerges is not a saint or a supernatural figure, but a politician, statesman, and general. We don't have time to go into all the twists and turns of Louverture's career, but I'd like to highlight a few aspects of his character that I found particularly interesting or surprising. First of all, I was fascinated by the fact that a 48-year-old civilian with no prior experience in the military or the government became such an effective leader, seemingly overnight. Obviously, Louverture was blessed with great intelligence and many talents, 
Even as a child living under the slave system, he was recognized as an exceptional person, even by the whites on the plantation where he was held. But we're talking about leading armies of hundreds of thousands against well-trained European regulars, governing a nation of hundreds of thousands, and engaging in high-stakes diplomacy with the great powers. These are not matters in which a talented amateur can achieve consistent success. So how did he do it? As it turns out, Louverture was not a complete amateur when it came to leadership and politics. Despite his upbringing in slavery, he had a very unusual sort of apprenticeship under an important man in colonial society, the manager of the Breda plantation where Louverture was born. His name was Francois Bayon de Libertat. Like many of the cash crop enterprises in Haiti, the Breda plantation was owned by an absentee landlord. The owner was fantastically rich. Why live in swampy, fever-infested Haiti when you can be living the high life in Paris? And so he entrusted the day-to-day operations of his Haitian businesses to his local lawyer, Monsieur Bayon. As a young man, Louverture was chosen to serve as Bayon's coachman, what we today would call a chauffeur. This was partially a menial job. Louverture really did take care of the horses and drive the lawyer's carriage whenever he left the plantation. But there was also a more subtle, unspoken element to this position. The coachman would assist his boss in all kinds of sensitive errands, including high-level business negotiations and political meetings. In colonial Haiti, whenever the planter elite or the senior colonial administrators met in some smoke-filled room to decide on policies that would affect the future of the entire colony, you could always find their coachman waiting outside that smoke-filled room, ready to undertake any sensitive task. This was the really important side of a coachman's work. He was a fixer, assistant, and bagman, as well as a driver. The planter's coachman was also one of his only windows into the world of the black slaves, the only person a plantation manager or owner could trust to act as a go-between if there was a labor issue on the plantation. So the coachmen of Haiti were an important but invisible part of the fabric of colonial society. They were indirect parties to almost all of the most important political and economic decision-making in the colony. Coachmen were generally selected for their intelligence and had ample opportunities to watch and learn how the leaders of the colony operated. The majority of the leadership of the Great Haitian Slave Rebellion had worked as coachmen under the old regime. All throughout the 1780s, the great planters and politicians of colonial Haiti had been unwittingly training their replacements. Louverture's relationship with Monsieur Bayon seems to have been actually a lot warmer than that general description of the job might suggest. We don't have many sources on this period of Louverture's life, but we do have some of the two men's correspondence from later in their lives, after Louverture's rise to power. And I was quite shocked by how friendly and intimate their relationship was. Louverture referred to Bayon as father, and Bayon said Louverture was like one of his own sons. When Louverture learned that Bayon was broke, having been forced to flee Haiti for the United States, Louverture sent him money. Bayon was a fervent supporter of Louverture's government and even sent his sons back to Haiti to serve on Louverture's staff so they could learn from Louverture in the same way he had once learned from their father. Bayon was a lawyer and business manager. Louverture clearly learned a lot about politics and the economy under Bayon's guidance but he would not have gotten very much exposure to military matters. So what explains his aptitude as a general? It seems he really did do a lot of learning on the job as a military leader. When Louverture first appeared on the national stage, he was in the camp of one of the main rebel armies, serving as a kind of advisor to the army's leaders, mostly specializing in diplomacy, sort of an unofficial foreign minister. His military responsibilities grew slowly, First, he was in overall command of a small force, handling strategy and making decisions, but leaving tactics and battlefield leaderships to his subordinates. As he achieved success, his forces grew until he was in command of a small army of several thousand. Once Louverture broke with his former allies and took independent command, he gradually involved himself more and more with tactics and became more of a presence on the battlefield itself. For long, he had a reputation as a fearless and skilled frontline leader. Over the course of his military career, he would be wounded in action no fewer than 17 times and would come to be recognized by everyone on all sides of the conflict 
as the most formidable general on the island. So how did Louverture learn to command armies in combat? At first, he benefited from the nature of the war. At the outbreak of the rebellion, almost everyone involved was an amateur. Much of the fighting was carried out by militias or even armed civilians. And the few regular soldiers were mostly poorly trained and seeing combat for the first time. So Louverture was able to get his first taste of military leadership fighting against other amateurs. After that, he did what most of us would do, he studied. Louverture hired a retired army officer to tutor him in military leadership and saber fencing. And after securing his alliance with the French, he borrowed European military manuals and read voraciously. Looking over Louverture's military career, it is remarkable how many alumni of cutting edge military academies were bested by a man who learned how to be an officer in his late 40s and early 50s, largely from reading books. But in my opinion, the greatest struggles of Louverture's career did not come on the battlefield, but in politics. For starters, simply securing his position as paramount leader of the Haitian rebel movement was a stunning achievement. You might imagine the rebels as united by a common cause, but they were an incredibly fractious bunch, a coalition of independent leaders, each with a different background, a different outlook, and a different vision for the country's future. It was not uncommon for rival rebel groups to turn their guns and machetes on each other when they weren't busy fighting the real enemy. Louverture himself actually had some close calls in these fratricidal conflicts. At one point, he was actually arrested and imprisoned by a rival commander. On another occasion, he and his personal staff were ambushed by a competing rebel band, and Louverture's own brother was killed in the opening musket folly. But Louverture did not allow these near misses to change the way he conducted his affairs. He was a hands-on leader, I think more so than any other major political leader I've covered in all my years doing this show, including Napoleon. He ruled from the road. There was no secret base or headquarters that was the center of Louverture's administration. Even in peacetime, he and his staff toured the country on horseback. His office was wherever he laid his head for the night. You might imagine that a great general and national leader would travel with some pomp and circumstance, but Louverture liked to keep things simple. He was widely regarded as one of the best horsemen in the country and he liked to ride out ahead of his staff and bodyguards, seeing Haiti and encountering its people alone. And so many ordinary Haitians were able to meet the general one-on-one, -on -one, either on one of these rides through the countryside or in private audiences that he held every night that were open to every citizen, male or female. This must've been a powerful experience. These people had gone from living under a regime that did not even consider them human beings to living under a government whose leader was willing to greet them and talk to them as an equal without even a token force of bodyguards. No wonder they loved him. Looking over his political career, I'm always struck by Louverture's ability to tailor his self-presentation and message to his audience. Obviously, all politicians do this to a degree, but only the truly great ones are able to do it while keeping their authenticity intact. With average hastens, Louverture emphasized his roots. He sometimes referred to himself in the third person as Toussaint from Breda. The Breda plantation, where he was born and raised, had been one of the biggest in the colony, and that name was instantly recognizable to his audience as a reminder of his roots. He never spoke French to a Haitian audience, always in the local dialect, Creole, or in Fon, his parents' native language from West Africa, which had thousands of speakers in Haiti. Louverture was a devout Catholic and often used religious imagery and scriptural references when speaking to these audiences. There was also a lot of folksy stories and traditional sayings. The overall message was clear. Louverture was reassuring his audience that despite his exalted position, he was still one of them. And who else could the common people of Haiti truly trust to look out for their interests? More educated audiences got a different side of Louverture. He spoke in standard French, apparently with perfect fluency. His religious references were far fewer and much more vague, thus presumably more palatable to any Enlightenment deists or non-believers in the audience. Louverture would speak to the universal ideals that united the French and Haitian revolutions, freedom, equality, and brotherhood, 
He even made allusions to the Greeks and Romans, which was all the rage in Europe, but must have felt very distant to a black man who had never left the Caribbean. To an elite audience, he was never folksy, and he definitely didn't worry about sounding pretentious. He presented himself as an erudite idealist, motivated by high-minded universal principles. And the reason it worked so well was that both of these images were more or less true to life. The unpretentious ex-slave Toussaint from Breda and the idealistic General Louverture, loyal Frenchman and defender of Republican virtue, were both authentic expressions of his character. When the fighting ended, Louverture would need all of his political skills. He had little formal role in the colony's civilian administration, but his position as commander-in-chief of the Republican military forces in the colony and his personal popularity and influence made him by far the most important player on the local political stage. The nations had paid a terrible price for their victory. I think it's worth dwelling on just how badly the country had been ravaged by seven years of war. The second phase of Louverture's career only really makes sense when you take into account what a ruin Haiti had become. Estimates of the colony's pre-war population and the number of casualties suffered are both sketchy and contested, but some estimates suggest that as much as half of Haiti's population died between the first outbreak of violence and the last evacuation of the British Redcoats. Half of the population dead in just seven years. Imagine what a profound impact that must have had on the survivors. Almost any civilian with the means to do so had fled the colony. This disproportionately included the engineers, clerks, lawyers, managers, and civil servants whose skills were needed to run a modern state. The Haitian economy had been almost completely destroyed. I do mean that literally. In many parts of the country, money had become useless. Even basic goods could only be acquired through barter or connections. The cause of this dire situation was quite obvious. The Haitian economy had been built for one purpose, the production of lucrative cash crops. All large-scale economic activity in the colony revolved around this single pursuit. And under the stresses of war, every one of those industries had practically ceased. I think the numbers tell the story. Haiti's primary crop had always been sugar. It was sugar that had once made this the most profitable colony in the world. By the end of the war, sugar exports were down to 1.2% what they had been before the violence. Other cash crops were hit even harder. Cotton exports were down to 0.7% and indigo down 0.5%. There were no other sectors of the economy to pick up the slack. In two centuries of colonial rule, Haiti had never really produced anything but cash crops in any significant quantities. And as if that wasn't enough, although Louverture had signed a ceasefire with the British, Britain and France were still at war. That ceasefire did not extend to French merchant ships on their way to Haitian ports. The Royal Navy was standing between Haiti and its most important trading partner. So this was the country Louverture would try to rule and return to prosperity still bearing the wounds of civil conflict, with half the population dead, the economy almost totally destroyed, and right in the middle of a still ongoing international conflict. He would have to navigate this impossible situation while maintaining peace between the diverse factions within Haiti, including both the ex-slaves and their former captors, and people who had been on opposite sides of this horrible conflict. He would have to steer a course between the various competing outside powers as well. Haiti desperately needed commerce and investment from the United States and Britain, but both of these countries also had ambitions of dominating Haiti or even annexing it. And the relationship with France was not a sure thing either. Many in Paris were uneasy that so much power in the colony was being concentrated in the hands of one man, particularly a man with so few ties to France who had once led rebel troops against French forces, and, of course, a man who did not share their European blood. Louverture's own power was far from secure. Almost as soon as peace was restored, he had to face a succession of political rivals. First, there was the slippery lawyer and ex-revolutionary Leger Felicité Santenax, 
who had been the first French official to declare the abolition of slavery, thus paving the way for the alliance between the French Republicans and the ex-slave rebels. Sontenax believed he could use his reputation as a great emancipator to turn Haiti into his personal fiefdom. Louverture thought otherwise, and Sontenax soon found himself outmaneuvered and expelled from Haiti. The next rival was General Gabriel de Duville, an accomplished soldier who had been sent to Haiti to break the power of the island's local leaders and put it back under close control from Paris. Edouville's heavy-handed style soon alienated the Haitian people, which Louverture was able to exploit. He used his influence to encourage a mass protest movement against Edouville, always careful to work behind the scenes, creating the impression this was a spontaneous grassroots campaign. Then, when the protesters marched on the capital, and it seemed violence was inevitable, Louverture arrived at the last moment to calm the crowd with an eloquent speech promising to personally present their demands to Edouville. On the surface, it seemed like Louverture was doing Edouville a favor, offering to use his influence to defuse this explosive situation. In practice, this was a threat. Do what I tell you to do, or I will let the crowd do what they want with you. This is vintage Louverture, a perfect example of how he liked to operate. He rarely took the direct route to his goals always orchestrating things and setting the scene so that no matter what the situation, he looks like the reasonable party. He always made it seem like giving him whatever he wanted was the only logical course of action. He could back you into a corner with a smile on his face. He sometimes got people so twisted around that his political enemies thanked him for the privilege of caving to his will. Louverture earned a reputation as a just ruler, even from his enemies, but it might be a stretch to call him honest. He didn't make a habit of lying to his own people, but he could be absolutely shameless in his deceptions of other parties. He was a KG operator, and some of his deceptions were quite brazen. To take one example, during the war, when Louverture shifted his allegiance from Spain to France, he continued writing regular reports and flattering letters to his former superior, the governor of Spanish Santo Domingo. While in the field, his troops were fighting and killing Spanish soldiers. The Spanish governor believed these letters and kept up regular shipments of money, supplies, and equipment to Louverture's forces. In fact, he was so pleased by the fictional achievements in Louverture's letters that he even awarded him a medal. When the governor finally began receiving reports that Louverture's forces were fighting alongside the French, Louverture managed to convince him that it was British propaganda, and the money and supplies kept flowing for several months before the Spanish finally figured out what was going on. I think that's as good a segue as any to talk about the dark side of Louverture's character. As I hope I've demonstrated, Louverture excelled at intrigue. He played his cards close to the vest, and typically kept his own agenda hidden. This was often very prudent. The Haitian political scene was incredibly chaotic and Louverture was always surrounded by rivals and enemies. However, this tendency sometimes manifested in paranoia. Louverture trusted no one outside a very small inner circle. As ruler of Haiti, he sometimes isolated himself. He continued to roam the country, mingling with his people and carrying on all the duties of a political leader, but he did not share his burdens. In fact, during Louverture's rule, he seems to have lost some of his famous idealism, the repeated disappointments and frustrations of trying to rebuild and unify this shattered country seem to have shaken his faith in others, and even in the Republican ideals he had professed during his rise to power. Louverture's regime became increasingly authoritarian and personalized. First, this was mostly informal. Louverture inserted loyalists in key positions, built ties of patronage throughout the administration and army, and wielded his personal popularity like a weapon to destroy his rivals. But faced with the difficulties of governing this ungovernable country, Louverture began tightening his grip, formalizing his power, and increasingly relying on the only effective functional institution at his disposal, the army. His critics charged that Louverture's new Haiti looked pretty similar to the old Haiti. He tried to revive the plantation system, although without slavery, 
and he worked hard to entice the country's white and mixed-race upper and middle classes back to Haiti and to make them feel included in the political system. These were people who many Haitians viewed as traitors and oppressors, and not without reason. When it came time to draft a new constitution for Haiti, Louverture sought to institutionalize his power. He stacked the constitutional committee with his allies, and, predictably, they came up with a document that practically made him a king, governor for life, with the right to name his own successor, the power to veto the elected parliament, and the power to veto direct orders from Paris. The new constitution also enshrined the role of the army in Haiti's administration and politics, a very dangerous precedent. It was a departure from the idealism that had animated Louverture and his supporters during the war. Under the circumstances, perhaps he could not have done otherwise, but it is a departure nonetheless. Some accounts of the Haitian Revolution will tell you that this authoritarian constitution was Louverture's fatal mistake, that in giving himself so much power and so much independence from Paris, Louverture crossed a red line with the French and convinced Napoleon that he had to be removed. However, some historians dispute this narrative. Looking at Napoleon's deliberations on the matter, you don't find much mention of the new Haitian constitution, and Bonaparte floated the possibility of removing Louverture from power long before he received news of the authoritarian constitution. Bonaparte was generally a decisive leader, to put it mildly, but he seems to have really agonized over this decision. He went so far as to draft a letter confirming his support for Louverture, but never sent it. Instead, he sent ships and soldiers. This was one of the largest military expeditions in history up to that point. More men than Sir Robert Clive had used to conquer Bengal a generation earlier, and more men than Napoleon himself had used to conquer Egypt in 1798. They would be led by Napoleon's own brother-in-law, General Charles Leclerc, a man who Bonaparte held in very high esteem, and believed was destined for great things. The Haitians had no warning of this attack. Louverture had suspected the French were not happy with him and might try something like this, but did not have confirmation of these suspicions until ships flying the tricolor showed up unannounced off the Haitian coast. As I mentioned earlier, Louverture's paranoia could be an asset as well as a liability. He had prepared for this contingency. If faced with another foreign invasion, all of his forces had orders to destroy what they could along the coast and melt away into the rugged interior, where Louverture had stockpiles of weapons, food, and equipment prepared for this eventuality. The fighting that ensued was some of the most brutal of the entire Napoleonic Wars. Counterinsurgency campaigns are always ugly, and there was the added element of racial hatred plus the bitterness that always develops when former allies fall out. Faced with a seemingly impossible struggle, many of Louverture's local allies turned their backs on him and swore allegiance to France. Louverture was back where he started, alone in the wilderness with limited resources and only a few thousand loyal followers. Ironically, this disaster seems to have rejuvenated Louverture. Once again, his people needed an inspirational and resourceful leader, and once again, Louverture stepped into the role. The more jaded and imperious side of the old general seemed to vanish entirely. It was just like old times. Louverture seemed cornered, but somehow his enemies never quite managed to land the killing blow. He and his followers held on. Leclerc and his forces secured the coast relatively easily but found it almost impossible to push into the interior. Resistance was stiff. The terrain was worse than anyone had imagined, and tropical diseases and guerrilla raids were winnowing down the expedition's strength. Leclerc wrote to his brother-in-law, First Consul Bonaparte, asking to be relieved, but was refused. Finally, Leclerc lost all hope of ever achieving a conventional victory and decided to resort to less honorable methods. Throughout this bitter fighting, Louverture had always kept back channels open to the French. He had consistently signaled that he was open to a peaceful settlement. He was a dealmaker at heart. Even after the French had betrayed him and brutalized his country, he was still willing to sit down with them and hammer out an agreement, as long as it served him and his people. 
And so Leclerc took him up on this offer, and the country settled into an uneasy peace, but it would only last a month. This ceasefire was a ploy. Louverture was lured away from his home and arrested by French forces. This was such a dishonorable act that Leclerc did not have the stomach to do it himself and delegated it to a subordinate. In French custody, Louverture was subjected to a concerted campaign of mistreatment and dehumanization aimed at breaking his spirit. They imprisoned him high in the Jura Mountains, where it was cold year-round, not a pleasant experience for a man who had spent his whole life in the tropics. His guards were instructed not to refer to him by any of his titles or even his surname, but only by his given name, just as slaves had been referred to under the old regime. Louverture used the time to write a book-length defense of his actions, and letters to powerful members of the French government. He demanded a trial so that he could address the accusations against him in public. He got no responses, and eventually his guards were ordered to remove his writing materials. By now, Louverture was 59, and the conditions of his captivity had taken a frightful toll on his health. He died on April 7, 1803, after about a year of imprisonment. He never got his day in court. Before he died, Louverture wrote these words. In overthrowing me, you have done nothing more than cut down the trunk of the tree of black liberty in Saint-Domingue. It will spring back from the roots, for they are numerous and deep. Those turned out to be prescient words. Outrage at Louverture's treatment and the general cruelty of the French expedition convinced many of Louverture's former supporters to restart the fight. Soon, one of Louverture's former deputies, General Jean-Jacques Dessalines was building a new rebel army in the Haitian interior. By late 1803, Dessalines won a decisive victory at the climactic engagement of the war, the Battle of Vertier. Some of the fighting took place in the ruins of the Breda Plantation, where Toussaint Louverture had been born and raised. On New Year's Day, 1804, General Dessalines declared Haiti's independence the military struggle against the European great powers was finally over, although the country's sorrows were not. Hopefully that gives you some idea of who Toussaint Louverture was and what makes him such a remarkable figure. His achievements were extraordinary, and the man behind those achievements was one of the most dynamic and original leaders of the entire era. He faced impossible odds. This environment of Napoleonic-era Haiti marked by bitter violence and total chaos, does not seem like the kind of place where a man like Louverture would thrive. He was a very subtle operator with a soft touch and a humanitarian streak. And yet, he came to dominate Haitian politics. Through all the twists and turns of his career, he never lost sight of his overall aim, the destruction of the slave system and the creation of a new type of egalitarian society. However, Louverture was no utopian. He was willing to get his hands dirty to see that dream made a reality. And he very nearly succeeded. If Bonaparte had actually sent that letter confirming Louverture's authority over Haiti, the subsequent history of the entire Western Hemisphere might have turned out differently. This, more than anything else, is the reason I keep coming back to Toussaint Louverture. To me, he represents a missed opportunity a road not taken that could have led to a more just world. Although, as he himself pointed out, his dream did not die with him. I think that's a good note to close on. Thank you for your attention, and I'll be happy to field any questions. Thank you so much. That's fantastic. What, a, what an incredible figure. Thank you. Thank you for bringing him to light a little bit to us. Um, we have had some questions roll in, but I wonder if uh, before we get to sort of more in-depth questions, you could say a few words on the artwork that you you've shared throughout the slides. Um, I know some people have mentioned in the comments that they, they've seen this before, but uh, maybe you could just tell us sort of the artists and, and that sort of thing. Sure, I'm actually glad you asked about that. I, I, was, I, was, uh, I really had a good time putting this together. I hope that showed through. Um, the majority of the images I used came from a series, The Life of Toussaint Louverture, uh, by Jacob Lawrence, who, one of my personal favorite artists, I I'm biased, I'm from Seattle, he was a Seattle guy as well, 
Um, but it's a wonderful series. And if you enjoyed this talk, I would encourage you to go look up and find the rest of them. They're, they're really, they're really good. Uh, and hopefully they'll, now that you know the story behind them, you'll appreciate them more. Um, and actually, as a side note, if you are ever in Seattle, the Seattle Art Museum recently acquired, um, I think they have about half of them now, and they're all together in one room. That's a really fun experience to go through that if you're ever in Seattle. Um, as far as the other images, um, you know, they were a mix of, uh, you know, there's a, this is not the most well-documented uh, phase of the Napoleonic Wars. And so I was, I was very limited by what is in the public domain um, and, you know, pertinent to the, to the talk. Um, so, uh, you know, the other ones kind of a, uh, you know, a mix that I, I found a variety of places. Great. Thank you. So speaking of sources, um, for people who are interested in learning more about uh, literature in general or the Haitian Revolution, sort of this, um, this lesser known aspect, as you say, do you have recommended uh, books or readings, that sort of thing? Yes. Um, so my favorite book of all, of all the books I read about Louverture in the course of my research, the one that stood out to me as you know, kind of the best, you know, the best blend of being engaging and having a lot of new information that I didn't see elsewhere. Um, and just, you know, generally, I think being a good read um, was a book called, um, let me uh, get the full title here. I, Suspected someone might ask about this. Um, Black Spartacus, the epic life of Toussaint Louverture. And the author is Sudhir Hazari Singh. And I'd also like to mention a book. Um, it's a very old book. And as I'm sure a lot of you know, you've got to be judicious reading a, a book, you know, more than, I don't know, 20, 30 years old. Uh, a book from the 1930s called The Black Jacobins um, by C.L.R. James which a um, little bit outdated now. I mean, it's like almost a hundred years old, um, but it is like CLR James is, I think uh, purely on a level of prose, one of the best historical writers ever. I mean, he, the guy was a very um, almost lyrical writer, which he combined with being, I mean, he was a very good, serious scholar as well. And that book is an absolute classic. Um, a lot of historians will tell you that it's one of their favorites. Um, the Black Jacobin, C.L.R. James. Maybe read that second, though, because, like I said, it is a bit outdated. I mean, there's there's stuff in there that is, you know, subsequent historians have have learned better. Um, but it's a, it's an absolute classic and well worth reading. Thank you. Um, so I'm going to go back. Um, I'm going to scroll back up. Uh, Neil Carey asked a very specific question, and I I want to make sure I I get the wording exactly right. So. Um, he's wondering, did anything in uh, Toussaint's career indicate that he was going to sort of follow in the footsteps of, or, or I guess, um, sort of the same sort of style of Desalines? Was he, uh, was he ever going to name himself emperor, uh, reinstate forced labor, massacre the remaining white population? Was, was there any, ever anything that indicated he might go down that path? I'm sorry, the question's about... Louverture or Dessaline? Uh, so was Louverture ever going to sort of the thing that Dessaline oh, okay, was going to do Sorry, you well? kind of have to be getting there. Um, that's a very interesting question. It's something I've thought about a lot. You know, the way things shook out, you know, Louverture, because of when he was killed, he sort of got to be the good guy. And Dessaline got to be the one who did all the kind of dirty stuff, as you mentioned, crowning himself emperor and becoming a dictator, uh, massacring. It's, it's, a, it's a myth that he massacred the whole white population of the colony, but a lot of people were massacred, um, thousands, certainly, uh, under his orders, uh, which I should also mention was an extremely unpopular order. And he actually had to go around the country with the army and force people to execute their, you know, white neighbors and and friends, um, very ugly episode. Um, I do wonder, I mean, Louverture is cut from a different cloth from Dessaline. Dessaline was a, a man of war, a man of violence. Um, and as we saw with Louverture, Louverture, you know, was willing to get his hands dirty, but he, um, and he that was always tempered in him. Um, that said, I do wonder with how authoritarian Louverture's regime did become by the end and how, I mean, just the impossible 
impossible situation of trying to rule this place. I do wonder if he might have, had he stayed in power, been forced to resort to at least some of the same um, of the same methods that Dessalines ultimately settled on. You know, maybe, maybe Louverture would have expelled people rather than massacring them. I do have a hard time picturing himself uh, as a him crowning himself as a monarch, um, just because you know that would uh, contradict so many of the um, that would contradict so many of the things that he had said and done up until that point in his career. But I mean, he had already basically taken. I mean, if you're the sole ruler for life, can name your own successor and have total independent political power from any oversight. I mean, what are you other than a monarch? Um, so I have a hard time imagining him actually, you know, wearing a crown around and the ermine furs and all the, you know, um, Dessalines regime was extremely opulent. And I have a hard time picturing Louverture, you know, really embracing that element of monarchism. Um, but he clearly had already crossed, um, you know, sort of in principle, um, had already crossed that threshold, I would say. So maybe not a satisfying answer, um, but uh you know, I, I would say that that's an open question and a very good one, um, and something worth thinking about when you look at Louverture's career. Yeah, no, I, I think a, a very valid answer. I mean, it is a what if question, right? So it, it has to be a very balanced, nuanced answer. Um, so thank you for that. Um, I wonder if I might, uh, we're approaching four o'clock, I wonder if I might uh, close with, with sort of one question that, again, as Tom will tell you, this is my habit, right? A, a massive question that could be, a, you know, a book in itself. But maybe you could just help us understand a little bit of how the Haitian Revolution is still being played out and what we see happening in Haiti today. How, how does that affect our 21st century world? Okay, well, I always try to avoid getting too deep into... Uh, contemporary politics on my show. I know I've got listeners from all over the spectrum, um, but I think in this narrow case, I can make an exception. Um, there is pretty much, you know, people look at what a disaster, um, I mean, the, the conditions now in Haiti are really terrible. Um, I mean, it is it is a huge outlier in the Western hemisphere with the, the level of poverty, um, the uh, just lack of infrastructure and national development, for lack of a better word, um, the the weakness of the state, um, and the, the the lack of a uh, you know a democratic political culture. Of course, they're far from the only country in the world with that problem, especially these days. Um, but it is certainly pronounced in Haiti and has been for quite some time. You can draw a straight line from the events that I've just been talking about to the current conditions in Haiti. I mean, it is really a, uh, you know, a clear progression where, you know, the, after these events, you know, Haiti was a pariah state. Um, you know, they were um, not recognized by most of the world as a sovereign government for decades after these events. Uh, and then in the 1820s, when they finally were recognized by the French, the French, made the Haitian government pay for the value of the lost property, meaning the people of the country, which is a bit ironic. And I think, you know, it's wrong in the moral sense. I think that should be obvious to everyone. It's also wrong in the legal sense that it was the French government that emancipated the slaves in Haiti. That was, um, you know, that was a legal act of the parliament in Paris. And so the idea that they would then, after the fact, come in and say, actually, you have to, you know, here's here's the bill for that, by the way. Um, you know, there's actually, that's actually a very weak legal argument. But um, that debt that Haiti, you know, because they, they did not have the resources, as I hope was clear from that talk, they did not have the resources to pay that down anytime soon. And so they were forced to go into very deep debt to make these payments to the French. And essentially, that debt has been the defining feature of Haitian life for over well over 100 years. Um, you know, there's been uh, repeated American interventions in Haiti aimed in large measure at protecting, um, you know, the uh, investments, so to speak, of American banks who were financing these payments to France. And essentially, you know, with Haiti being a pariah state 
and, and being saddled with this debt, they never had a chance to recover from the devastation I talked about in this show. I mean, you know, that's part of the reason why Louverture is so fascinating to me is you look at just what a horrible situation they were in and you think only a really exceptional, remarkable, you know, X factor could change things. And, you know, given Louverture's talents, maybe he, that could have been him. Um, but, you know, I would say, you know, today, you know, write your member of parliament, write your congressman, whatever, you know, because our, you know, the governments in here in the wealthy West still are holding Haiti's debt over them. And today, I mean, I'm not kidding. Literally this month, there has been discussions about, you know, increased Western military presence in Haiti. So I, I would say, you know, the Napoleonic Wars, particularly here in North America, the Napoleonic Wars can feel very distant. And the, the issues that people were fighting over in Europe can seem like, generally speaking, they're all settled now. But this aspect of the Napoleonic Wars is not settled. This is still going on. It's still a problem. And um, I got to say, honestly, and this is editorializing a bit, Haiti is not regarded very differently by many people in the power structures in the Western world as it was back then, I don't think. They're still not getting a fair shake. They're still being treated like pariahs and still being treated like they don't are not capable of governing themselves. Um, so uh, unfortunately, that is a very, very sad conclusion to, to this um, to this lecture, which I hope had some elements of hope to it. But, um, you know, as Louverture himself pointed out, the dream is not dead. There is still a chance for things to turn around, people there to have a better life. So hopefully this story will one day come to an end. Or uh, as closing comments, the talk prompts a lot of people in our audience to go learn more about Haiti, its past, its present state, and, and if there might be a solution there. So. So thank you, Everett. A great talk, a, a great conclusion to an amazing day. Really appreciate you making yourself available and, and sharing yourself and, and your knowledge with, with our audience. So thank you so much um, for everyone watching. Thanks for joining us today, whether it's full day, a part of the day. Uh, remember, uh, you can watch the rest of the talks from today on our YouTube channel. We have lots of other content, um, specific, specifically Napoleonic content. And uh, I just got to put this out there again. Please do subscribe. That will help us a lot. So everyone take care. Have a great evening. We'll look forward to talking to you soon. And if you think of it or have the time, join us tomorrow. I hope you guys enjoyed that. A few years ago, when we finished our own series of episodes on the Haitian Revolution, I wanted to cap it all off with a conclusion episode, reviewing everything we had covered and providing my own final thoughts on the topic. I wound up not doing that, mostly because I was eager to get back to the main narrative, so hopefully this provided some much-delayed closure on that era of the show. I would encourage you once again to go check out some of the other talks from the symposium, if you're interested in Napoleonic history, I think you will really enjoy them. I'll provide a link in the description of this episode, or you can go to historysymposium.com. I'll be back to you again in a few weeks with another dispatch. Then, on to episode 100 on the Battle of Eilau. As always, thanks for listening. In all human history, there are few stories like that of ancient Egypt. On the banks of the Nile, these people created one of the most enduring and significant cultures. Their tale comes to life in the History of Egypt podcast. Every week, we explore the tales of this amazing culture, from the legendary days of creation and the gods, all the way to Cleopatra, and everything in between. The History of Egypt podcast is written and produced by a trained Egyptologist. We go much deeper than your average documentary or magazine article to uncover tales of life, great endeavours, and the amazing arc of a mighty kingdom. The History of Egypt podcast is available on all podcasting platforms, apps, and websites. Come, visit Ancient Egypt, and experience a legendary culture.
Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. 400 years ago, a trio of tiny kingdoms were perched on some damp islands off the coast of Europe. Within three short centuries, these islands would become the centre of an empire which ruled a quarter of the globe and on which the sun never set. I'm Samuel Hume, a historian of the British Empire, and my podcast Pax Britannica follows the people and events that built that empire into a global superpower. Learn the history of the British Empire by listening to Pax Britannica everywhere you find your podcasts, or go to pod.link slash pax.